Welcome to Cybersecurity Unplugged, the cyber theory podcast where we explore issues that matter in the world of cybersecurity. Good day, everyone. I'm Steve King, the Managing Director at Cyber Theory. Today's episode is going to explore advances in data protection and ransomware. We're also going to hear about career development from a leader who has had huge success in marketing, branding, and communications to equally impressive success in cybersecurity. Joining me today is Janine Darling, the CEO and founder of Stash, the leader in proactive data protection and secure data creation. Stash has won many industry awards for innovation and quality, as has their leader. In addition to her recognition in the cybersecurity space, Janine has a fantastic background spanning branding and marketing operations and strategy. As a marketer, she has driven the expansion and profitability of brands like Samsung, Sony, Barnes and Nobles, Chanel, Nestle, Starbucks, and many others. In addition to that, Janine ran international operations and marketing for, wait for it, Victoria's Secrets for eight years. So thank you, Janine, for joining me today. Well, I couldn't be happier to be here, Steve. Thanks for having me. Great. Let's start with cybersecurity. We have to figure out how to stop this ransomware plague. And I know you guys at Stash have come up with a what I think is a pretty compelling solution. Can you tell our listeners about it and explain a little bit about how it works? Sure, I'd love to. I think what I'd like to do is just start with why ransomware exists. For every good thing in the world, like valuable data, that creates the unique personas of us as people, of businesses and corporations, of governments worldwide. There are dozens and dozens of people who want to exploit that goodness into something that is bad. So you can think of data, and this is an oft-used phrase, you can think of data as the crown jewels, right? So crown jewels of the digital world. And because those crown jewels continue to be vulnerable, despite Herculean efforts on so many companies' parts to make it safe, people who want to steal good things are out there. And of course, one of the best ways to do it is to freeze the way that people are communicating and doing business with one another. So that's why ransomware exists. So it's really an old, old story. What we have done at Stash is take a look at why this is happening. And we've developed something that completely circumvents ransomware. What it does is if a company is held up and frozen by people who want to do them harm by stealing their data or more and more by manipulating the data or destroying the data, you can simply go to the Stash dashboard and you can click a few buttons. You can restore data by the entire system through versions, through date and time, and click a button and you have circumvented the ransomware. The other side, without paying the ransom, of course, the other side of that coin, of course, that everybody thinks about is, well, okay, but, you know, they still have the data. Well, that's the other side of the coin for Stash as well. It doesn't really matter. We don't care that they have the data because the way things have been designed at Stash is they will not be able to access the content of those documents. 
So they're worthless to them. And it doesn't matter how many times that you're attacked and how many times you're ransomed, this recovery system will help you to have peace of mind around a plague that is only growing by leaps and bounds. And it's it's dangerous, Steve, as you and I both know. I mean, when when hospital records, when hospitals are attacked and are taken offline for weeks at a time, you're looking at, you know, physical damage and loss of life. I'm very glad to see that uh, just this last week, you probably saw this in the news, the uh, Biden administration has put together a ransomware task force, and they've laid out a number of steps to take immediate action to address this matter. And I think that that's going to be a good thing for not only the United States, but the rest of the world as well. Yeah, no kidding. And, uh, you know, applaud them for doing that and and also for uh, Congress actually waking up and and trying to, you know, get a cyber civilian core bill through and an additional $400 million in funding. So maybe the rest of the world is waking up here, which would be great. With regard to that and, and kind of a little bit outside of the cybersecurity realm, we, we know that this remote working thing is about to become permanent in one form or another. I, most, you know, most businesses that I know of are estimating, you know, 60 to 70 percent of white collar workers remaining in a remote environment. And we also know we live in a digital world. So as these conditions evolve, what do you think are the most significant impacts to culture, society, and international politics within or without cybersecurity? You know, that is, we we could actually talk about that for hours, but I'm going to try and and stick to the things that I think are the most impactful, uh, the couple that I think are most impactful. I think that for a long time, there has been the idea that everybody needed to be in one place at one time in order to be productive when Indeed, what that does is force a particular component around people and actually uh, removes the productivity, right? They, they get completely apathetic to doing the work, right? Because there are so many constraints. I think one of the things that is coming out of this, this forced working remotely thing is that um, people are integrating their lives with their work. I think that there's going to be more focus on the value of work rather than how many hours that workers are spending time doing the work. The the truth of the matter is, I mean, you know, we've all been working from home. I I happen to really love work and integrated it into my life a long time ago. It is just part of my life. But for the vast majority of people, without that constant pressure, of being in an environment, attending meetings that go on and on that are often not necessary, there is a desire to do the work and it is much more pleasurable. You can do it on your own schedule. You don't have to do nine to six or whatever hours that businesses typically run. It also loosens up the constraints on doing business cross-border, right? People can communicate with each other in the middle of the night, take a nap from 9 to 11 in the morning locally, and then then get back to work. I think it makes for a much more productive work environment and a much more productive life in general. I think that the environmental effects, uh, you know, we've had um, with lockdown, we've had a lot of cities that have not had very many vehicles driving through them, right? And in that very short period of time, 
there have been clearer skies and less polluted air. And, and you know, I imagine what that, that will be like if that is a longer term thing. Great for the environment, great for our health, right? Because we're breathing that air. So I, I love that. I think there's I think there's going to be more time for a social life. Again, because people can do business and be productive on their own schedules, they can make time for you know, being social and seeing their family and friends, time that they may have been spending commuting, right? There's lots of people that I know who commute or were commuting, I should say, a couple of hours each way. That is a lot of time in a week that could be spent doing something that is so much more pleasurable and so much generates so much good overall. Those are just a few of the things that I can think about. I I also think that it's going to level the playing field. This is kind of probably the most important one. It's going to level the playing field in terms of opportunity. Many of the best career opportunities are concentrated around urban areas, right? And so people would move close to or into those areas and, and really spend in aggregate a great deal of money to be near the places that they work so that they could get the best opportunities. In a digital remote environment, that playing field is leveled. So as we've seen, you can really be working from anywhere and do what you need to do and still create a career path that is vibrant when perhaps those opportunities weren't available before. So those are my those are the top things I think about, Steve. Yeah, there are many. Uh, this whole this this I don't know new integrated life work form that uh, is going to evolve out of this is is going to do exactly what I think you said. That as you say, there are tons of benefits both from a health point of view as well as from the environmental point of view, and and the removal of all those barriers that used to exist for entrepreneurship will level the playing field. Now, I'm sure there are. Adventure investors that are actively seeking the next Zoom technology that will completely revolutionize our interactions, from, you know, both socially as well as from a from a business point of view. We've all gotten very used to this, and we all agree that the technology needs some needs some dramatic improvement. Uh, speaking sort of of the social uh, media world, Facebook has an interesting history of cyber interruptions. What, what's your take on the world's largest social media platform with regard to privacy, data security, and you know, ultimately responsibility? You know, this again is a kind of a multi-layered thinking process, right? I, I think that Mark Zuckerberg, all those years ago, had a fantastic idea to be able to connect people. And of, of course it resonated so well and grew to be so large. It's just quite clear that the connection and the interaction that it provides is valuable to the vast majority of people. Okay, and if it's not Facebook, it's another platform. There are many platforms now that people are uh, interacting on. I think that they were some of the saviors of the pandemic. Right, you could you could actually get online and interact with people, and to your point, via video conferencing, actually see people even if you couldn't be with them. So, you know, there's, there's so many positive things about this kind of connection. The challenge as we've moved down the path of uh, privacy and security is that Facebook's business model 
is really not built on privacy and security. It is built on utilizing the data of those of us who are on that platform in order to secure the attention of the companies that pay big dollars to fund Facebook, to fund that, the way that Facebook runs. I believe that for a while that Mark Zuckerberg thought that he could give lip service to some of the things that Facebook decided to implement regarding the security and privacy front. And he did implement some postures and protocols that if one were to look hard and dig your way through the Facebook labyrinth, you could protect yourself pretty well, it looked like, at least on the surface. The problem is, is that the lip service to some of the things that were proposed really hid the fact that there were still companies and organizations that, with the cooperation of Facebook, were collecting a great deal of our data. Right. And so I don't know how many times that Mark has been in front of Congress. I, I think it's been at least four, maybe five or six times. I don't watch when he speaks, only know that he's been there a number of times. And he seems to speak to the same things each time. What is happening now that is different than before is that the world populace is putting pressure on Facebook. Right. You've got GDPR. You've got many privacy laws that state by state in this country are going to force Facebook to make good on the promises that they've made and to provide transparency on how are they really protecting our data. Because I believe that trust in Facebook has taken a pretty good hit. You know, you've got the boy that cried wolf. Mark has cried wolf many times in terms of what he says that Facebook is doing to protect the people who use Facebook. But up until very recently, I believe that, you know, his instinct was to protect Facebook first and those of us who use Facebook afterwards. I think that those two things that are pulling at him are converging. Uh, I am hopeful that he is going to do the right thing. I don't know whether it will take something extraordinary happening to push that matter, but it does seem like he's moving in a positive direction. Whether he's had to be pushed a little bit or not, you know, I think we can all understand that, right? You have to measure risk against gain all the time in business. But I think that he's going to need to take a harder look at risk and do some real impactful things in order to gain to gain users' trust back and to deliver on the promises he's made. My two cents. All that being said, Facebook is still the largest social media platform in the world. So yeah, exactly. and there's a lot of you know, and, and there's a lot of individual responsibility too. You know, it's, I'm always cautious of you know the being that the guy that you know makes the captain obvious statement, but but you know, yeah, people have to begin to understand what to your point, what their, their risk is in sharing all of that information they're so gleeful about putting out there. You know, it's that, it's that old story. If something is free, if something is free, it's not free, okay? And, and, and if you're being offered something for free, you really better understand what the cost is because it's there. 
You just need to understand what it is and you need to control it, right? No, sure. It's true of every every activity on the internet itself, right? And so shopping and Googling and all the rest of it, you know, people need to realize one of these days that they've just given up their entire psychographic makeup and profile uh, in exchange for all of that uh, ease of use and, and speed of discovery. So, you know, what have you, but uh, more moving away a little bit from privacy and data security and in the, in the remaining in the, with the context of Facebook, and other social media platforms, you know, it's pretty clear that the Valley, if you will, has sort of taken control of the distribution and availability of information, news and information. We see all of them making determinations about what they want to share and what they want to sort of preserve or hide. Many people feel that you know they're sort of taking over the news and media information distribution business. What are your thoughts about that? I agree with you that that posture has been in existence for quite some time. I do think, again, the fact that there have been some big events of late, right? So I'm thinking particularly about solar winds and the fact that the real realization of the harm that can be done if data is distributed too widely, if it isn't protected well enough if it is not disseminated in a way that separates valuable data from data that is everyday data, let's call it that. I think that that realization has been dumped over everybody's heads like a, like a bucket of cold water, right? And so the implications of that is, yes, there are the media distribution, distribution companies, I think in terms of both not both, but actually these three things, privacy, security, and in the interests of our national security are beginning to at least admit that they need to be part of the solution instead of part of the problem, right? Everybody, it's human nature to want to be in the middle of things, right? There's this fear of missing out, there's wanting to be informed, is wanting not to miss out on anything that's going on in the world. But I believe that the responsibility really lies within the companies that are sharing this information to be thoughtful and maybe even a little bit reticent on what they're actually sharing. You know, the, the, the idea that freedom of speech means that you can say anything that you want at any time to anybody is something that's, I believe, very misunderstood by most people. That is not what freedom of speech means. It means that you can say or do uh, anything that you wish, as long as it does not cause a national problem or hurts somebody. That is what freedom of speech is. We have gotten very polarized in this country with media organizations that take one side or another. When I can remember watching the news years ago when it was just news, the news was being reported to us, right? The things that were going on were being reported to us. Now, many media organizations, as you well know, report into the entertainment divisions of their corporations. And so it's about clicks and eyeballs and you know, what can I say or how fast can I say it that will get the attention. I don't really care whether it does damage or not. 
I hope that I'm not wrong when I am beginning to perceive the beginnings of a mo- movement that is away from some of the drama we've had in the last few years into something that is a little bit more rational and thoughtful when it comes to public communication. I, I don't think you're wrong at all. And, uh, you know, every time the pendulum swings that far one way or the other, it drags behind it a treasure chest of, of opportunity for folks that want to take a different position. And, you know, as you point out, then, you know, you got half the country feels one way and half the country feels another way. So there's lots of opportunity on one side of that equation. And we'll talk about the Chinese in a minute here, <laughs> by the way. But first, our listeners are always interested in career development stories. And Part of that goes to what we're doing with uh, CyberEd.io, which is our education platform we're going to be launching in the next month or so. And a bunch of that uh, content will be directed toward uh, how one establishes, builds, and, and then has a successful career in cybersecurity. But tell us a little about what influenced your career path from a, from, you know, a global operations leadership role with Victoria's Secrets through your whole marketing and branding sort of this third or fourth life in between now and then, and, and then ultimately here to, to the world of cybersecurity? It has been, um, as much as it seems like a circuitous path from the top line, from the umbrella view, it is more direct than you might imagine. And I'm going to start with being raised as a Yankee in Connecticut by parents who really made it important to all of us that we do well by doing good. And and that phrase uh, has become a little trite right now. It's a phrase that's that's being used uh, in marketing and to pull on the heartstrings all over the place. But that is the way that we were raised. And one of my favorite things to do well, from the time I was very, very young, was to solve problems, to look at situations, look at products, look at services, look at things and think to myself, you know, why are they doing it like that? You know, there's a better way to do that. And so my career really has been um, in operations, in business building, more than anything else. And the connection with marketing and branding is because the most successful companies have steak that matches the sizzle, right? So if you're marketing a product or service, when we market Stash, we we talk about the fact that it's a solution. It is not another tool in an ocean of cybersecurity tools. You can actually use Stash. It will solve, it will solve your data compromise problem. Okay. And the fact that we say that and the fact that I am the founder of this company means that I would never, ever say anything like that unless I knew that we could deliver. And so the marketing and branding aspect of my career joined very nicely with operations because I would talk to marketing, which for many years, you know, would have carte blanche in saying that something could be delivered, right? And then they'd go back into the people who were actually doing the work to deliver the product or service and say, I've just sold this, you need to make it happen. That's really not the way to do it, right? There, there, there really needs to be a cooperation between what you're actually saying in the public space and what you actually really can deliver. 
Okay, so so that's there is the connection there. Along with my operations roles, IT reported into me almost all the time. And I have always been interested in personal privacy. Uh, I'm a rather private person. I enjoy talking about my business. I enjoy uh, being on podcasts like this one and on panels and giving speeches. But in my heart of hearts, I am a very private person and have always been. And so the idea that privacy, and of course, you really can't have privacy without security. The idea that the amount of compromise that exists in the world began to grow, you know, 20 years ago, there was a hack here and a hack there, and people thought there were anomalies. But, you know, this has become an environment where there are 50 billion connected ways to either directly or indirectly get to data. And so it's, it's really important to understand that to make a difference, you needed to think about security in a different way. And I kept looking at this problem and looking at this problem thinking, you know, I think I have a way to approach this that is different, that will make a difference. And, you know, without going into everything that went ahead of where the company is now, I did talk to a lot of people, did a lot of focus groups, talked to people about if something existed that gave you peace of mind that you never had to worry again that your data was going to be stolen or manipulated or lost or destroyed, would you buy it? And the vast majority of people, even years ago, when I first started the company, we started the company in 2014, people said, I haven't really been thinking about that, but gosh, that sounds like a good idea. And so that was how I began the company. And I, the first iteration of Stash, I built with a development company in New York, all on my own, and then was able to attract really a stellar team of people who are with me to this day. And we have developed quite legitimately something that solves the data compromise problem. So the data is protected from creation through destruction. Anywhere it travels, anywhere in the world, anywhere that companies or individuals want to store it on cloud or off. It is not a heavy lift to integrate it. It is, you know, when Apple was in a garage and people were saying, you know, why do we need that? You know, we have IBM. We have, you know, we have a way to communicate via digital computers and you know, we, we were in that realm. There would be IBMs of the world were in full force. This is that next thing in a world where people are thinking, well, there isn't anything else. Well, yeah, there is. There really, really is. And it's my pleasure to be able to solve something that is a scourge. And it's affecting the way we live. It is affecting the way we interact with our business associates, with our family, with our friends. It is affecting every aspect of our lives and it's costing the world economy billions and billions and billions of dollars a year. And so, you know, I'm it's a very exciting time. I think that since COVID, the cybersecurity ship has finally turned towards the idea that of course you need defense, right? You want to keep out the riffraff. But the malicious actors and algorithms that are after your data, they can get in no matter what, because there are that many ways in and you can't protect all of them. So you need to be protecting the data. 
That's what we brought to the table. That's what I'm so excited about, this big, big problem, since I'm a problem solver, this big problem that we've been able to solve. And, you know, I'm looking forward to most of the world being able to take advantage of what we have developed. Yeah, it's very exciting. I think Vint Cerf is, is on your board. Is that not right? Or advisor? Vin Cerf is one of our advisors. He was also the very first investor in Stash. So uh, we, he is a, a wonderful, wonderful genius uh, when it comes to what has happened in the world of the internet and what is coming. I mean, he's just wonderful to talk to and he's got a great deal of faith in what we have. Yeah, no, that's great. So speaking of the internet and data security, this is my final question because I think we're, we're about out of time here, but we both know quantum is on its way. The Chinese are way ahead of everyone on the application of that technology. How will we be able to defend against data encryption threats that can break an algorithm in you know, microseconds? One of the keys, no pun intended, one of the keys to be in, in being able to protect against a quantum computing architecture is by moving away from the encryption systems that we use for the most part right now, for the most part. And what that is called is public key infrastructure or PKI for short. And that particular infrastructure is incredibly vulnerable to quantum. Okay, so, so we really need to move away from basically what every computer is using now in terms of encryption. The truth of the matter is, is that quantum was built to, or is being built, I should say, to do something that is other than everyday work, right? So, so quantum computing and the kind of computing architecture that we use right now in our daily lives and business lives, they're going to live side by side. Okay. What, what they're going to do is quantum is going to solve very large information problems very, very quickly. And we will continue to use uh, for a very long time the regular computer architecture that we do. That being said, quantum, it, it would seem that quantum is going to be with us tomorrow. The truth of it is, is that it is estimated from 10 years away to 30 years away. Right. And, and, and it's not that we shouldn't be paying attention to it. Quite frankly, well, our, our key technology at Stash, it is non-PKI. We have keys that are patented. They work like a nuclear dashboard. Right, You have to have a couple of different keys that are activated at the same time, a couple of different hashes in order to, to decrypt or encrypt the data. So, so we are paying attention to it because it is coming along. But it's not something that everybody should worry about as an immediate thing. I think that uh, there are organizations that have been paying attention to this for quite some time. There's something called the National Institute of Standards and Technology, NIST for short, that, you know, as far back as 2015, we're asking encryption experts to submit algorithms for testing against quantum, right? So it's, it's front of mind for us. But to your point, yes, the Chinese are definitely further ahead. I believe that there is, it is, it is quite clear here by the organizations that are paying attention to this, quite clear to them that they need to catch up. As a regular person, as somebody who is doing business and living their lives, 
quantum is not something you have to worry about right this minute, but it is definitely on the horizon. I think that like all good things, it's going to have the flip side of that coin and it's going to do wonderful things for humankind, but then it's going to be exploited as all good things are by people who want to take advantage of something valuable to make some money. So that's what I think is going on. <laughs> right. Well, thank you. That's a comforting explanation. There's so much noise in the transmission, it makes it very difficult. Somehow the Chinese figured out how to get Shanghai to Beijing locked down in a quantum network. It's very difficult to keep those little protons balanced. So we're out of time today. We scratched the surface of a lot of stuff. I thank you, Janine Darling, again for taking time out of your, I'm sure, crazy schedule to join me in what I thought was a delightful exchange. Thank you for taking the time to spend it with me, Steve. I enjoyed it so very much and uh, look forward to doing it again sometime. Yeah, no kidding. I, we will have you back for sure. And thank you to our listeners for joining us in another episode of Cyber Theory's Exploration into the complex world of cybersecurity, technology, and digital realities. Until next time, I'm your host, Steve King, signing out. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Cybersecurity Unplugged. You can connect with us on LinkedIn or Facebook at CyberTheory, or send us an email at social at cybertheory.io. For more information about the podcast, visit cybertheory.io forward slash podcast. Until next week, thanks again.